0: This is Glenn Healy. Hi, this is Braden Holpey.
1: This is Daryl Sutter.
0: Hi, this is Brian Burke. This is Jordan Tutu. This is Keith Morrison. This is Kelly Rudy. Hi, this is Scott Hartnell. Hey, everybody. My name is Steele Fleury. This is Tim McAuliffe of Sportsnet, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. I hope everybody had a great weekend. It was a scorcher. And it's only getting hotter. And I tell you what, it's heating up in the old podcast studio. We got a great one on tap for you today. Before we get there, let's get to today's episode sponsors. Carly Clausen and the team over at Windsor Plywood. They are the builders of the podcast studio table for everything wood. These are the guys. As you know, deck season is upon us. May have had a couple of scotches with the oldest brother there a couple, weekend, or a couple of weekdays back. Uh, and Windsor... Is stocked up in their micro pro sienna brown treated lumber. So if you get a backyard project on the go, stop in and see the boys uh, and ladies for that matter at Windsor plywood or just hop on your phone do what we all do and do a little creeping on their instagram page whether we're talking about mantles decks windows doors or sheds give them a call 780-875-9663 trophy gallery downtown lloyd minster is canada's supplier for glass and crystal awards business owners these are the perfect way to show your appreciation for your staff clinton engraves these luxurious awards right in store and you have the ability to customize to fit your style I bring up the SMP travel mugs, clinked it up for me, and hand them out on the bike-for-breakfast road trip, and let me tell you, they look absolutely sharp. Take a look at uh, online at trophygallery.ca. He's got all sizes, all shapes, all price ranges. Either stop in today, downtown Lloydminster. Minster, Or visit them, trophygallery.ca. They are Canada's awards store. Jen Gilbert and team for over 45 years, since 1976, the dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty have served Loyminster and the surrounding area. They offer star power, providing their clients with seven-day-a-week access. Service is a priority because they know big life decisions are not made during office hours. That's Coldwell Banker, Cityside Realty for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 780-875-3343. Mortgage broker Jill Fisher. Now, obviously, her name says it all. She probably serves the areas of Lloydminster, Bonneville, Cold Lake, and Vermillion. And she's looking forward to working with you for all your mortgage needs. She can help... Uh, Clear up some of the confusion or maybe the fog surrounding your mortgage and uh, what rates can do. Maybe you can get into a new rate. Maybe your mortgage is coming up. Maybe you can do an early renewal. All that jazz. She's a lady to talk to. That's 780-872-2914. Give her a call or stop into her uh, website, jfisher.ca. Clay Smiley and Profit River, did you hear the cool news? Or the big news? I don't know. They're moving into the, the uh, old buckle. Uh, the tier lounge does everybody i don't know if everybody's heard that or not i finally got confirmation from the team and i was like oh all right i'm curious to see what that looks like that is a big building big things happening for profit river they specialize in importing firearms from the united states of america and they pride themselves in making this process as easy for their customers as humanly possible uh they do all the appropriate paperwork on both sides of the border in order to legally get the firearm into canada and into your hands and they can take care of registering the firearm and transferring it to your PAL, FAC, before shipping them by mail, courier, or bus to wherever you are. Just go to ProfitRiver.com and check them out uh, today. They are the major retailers of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada and soon to be in a new home, which is, like I say, the old tier uh, buckle uh, on the west side of Lloydminster. SMP billboard across from uh, the airport uh, or the indoor signage i got if you're looking for indoor outdoor signage make sure you give the team of read and write a call 306-825-5111 finally gartner management is a lloydminster based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs whether you're looking for a small office or a 6,000 square foot commercial space give wade gartner a call 780-808-5025 and if you're heading into any of these businesses let them know you heard about them from the podcast right let's get on to that t-bar one tale of the tape Originally from South Africa, he's been a medical doctor for 15 plus years, a family man and concerned citizen. We're talking about Andrew Liebenberg. So buckle up, here we go. Welcome to the Sean Numa Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Liebenberg. So first off, uh, sir, thanks for uh, hopping on.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Sean. Good to meet you.
0: Now, I, I want to hear, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. I've been trying, like I said, to um, get anyone from the medical background to just come in and um, tease my curiosity, right? Because right. I'm, we're all going through this. And to have somebody in, um, in the field come and freely be open to talk about questions and like, just kind of see where my brain goes because there's a lot of concern out there. And uh, for somebody to come in, and I keep pointing it out to you before we start. I mean, you're not an old guy. You got young kids. Uh, As we both know, there's a lot at stake of you coming in and and maybe um, putting yourself in harm's way to talk about these things. So first off, I want to tip my my cap to you for coming in, um, and we'll get into that. Um, But I just want to say it, I'll probably say it a bunch of times today, I really appreciate you coming in this room and doing this with me. Now... What on earth were you doing today? We, we get started late. You're out on the North Saskatchewan. You want to give our, our listeners a little taste of what on earth you, you're up to these days?
1: Yeah, so um, me and a few friends from Vermilion took our kids paddling on the North Saskatchewan today. We jumped in at the Elk Point Bridge um, and headed downstream um, east. And what a beautiful afternoon. But my friend who planned it, I just looked at the distance and I thought I'd make it here on time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I didn't realize we were, we were having a late like afternoon stop and picnic on an island. And then we were paddling back against the current, um, back to where the second car was. And then, you know, how, what a mission it is with the two cars and, and plus 10 kids. And, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. My apologies for being late.
0: Oh, I'm not worried about it. I, yeah. I was saying to you before, I got the the three young kids at home sleeping. It's quiet in here. I had a coffee. I feel great. I got Ten kids on the North Saskatchewan is that like? Well, your? I mean, it
1: was a beautiful day. The water's high. There are a couple of gentle rapids, so it's it's fun for them. Um, I was on a standard paddleboard, which is uh, it's nice full body exercise. I, um, I grew up next to the ocean, so I grew up surfing, so so I enjoy that. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe you could give uh, a little bit of your background to the listeners to kind of give them a feel of uh, you know. That's a nice local flavor being on the North Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, but maybe a little bit of your background, just to let them know who we're talking to here.
1: Right. So I'm South African. grew grew up um, in a small town near Cape Town, southern tip of Africa. Um, we moved here 2016. Um, I've been I um, graduated from med school in 2002. Um. Also have a, a, a degree in medical science, in pharmacology and physiology. I've spent six months in a lab doing drug trials, early drug trials in animals, um, which was a fascinating year. So I've, I've spent extra time in the stats, in studies, all, all of that. And then I also have a, f- a four-year Master of Medicine degree in family medicine. And in South Africa, it was focused on rural medicine. So we kind of trained in everything. So I'm a, I'm a generalist, a jack of all trades. So in a rural hospital where you don't have access to specialist care, you can do a bit of everything. You can do emergency surgery, take out appendixes, that sort of thing, obstetrics, caesarean sections. I've done a six-month stint in ICU. So I, I have a, um, a, a, a good grounding or comprehension of that. I worked in a neonatal ICU. Yeah, pretty much done rotations and everything. Um, also of, of note is I worked in 2004 in the epicenter of the HIV AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. And at that point, we had about a 40% positivity rate in the community. I was running as a junior doctor internal medicine ward of 50 beds, um, female female patients. And most of my patients with HIV AIDS were young mothers, and because that community, the husbands would work in the mines, so they would come back, bring bring HIV home, um, in, in, infect their wives, and you know we had a lot of a lot of young children who got it through pregnancy and breastfeeding, and the tragedy is in in 2004 we did not have access to life-saving antiretroviral therapy, and antiretrovirals had been out for over 15 years which is really, it's something to stand back and reflect on. So if you are in a first world country, you had full access to antiretrovirals. Our government just simply couldn't afford to roll it out. So they were, they kind of had a blanket ban on it. And doctors who were standing up trying to get access to ARVs for their patients were actually losing their jobs, which thinking back now, it's, it's an injustice of huge proportions. You know, I think the first antiretroviral um, AZT was um, on the market in 1987. So yeah, and I think that's why I'm quite passionate about early treatment of, of COVID and repurposed cheap drugs that we know a lot about. They've, they've been out there for a long time. They have very well-known safety profiles. They cost nothing because they're off patent. And um, so I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of, um, of, of of getting access to to those to those drugs. And uh, yeah, we, I'm sure we'll ch- chat about ivermectin later. I do want to say at the start that um, I I take my the ethics of medicine incredibly seriously. The the ethical foundations my my oath and also the the CanMed's roles our our roles and responsibilities given by the the um the the college of um you know it's the the canadian the royal college of of physicians and surgeons i take that very seriously as a family physician i am a real advocate of patient centered care um and we'll get into that but i do want to say that i i speak for i'm 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 not um my views are are not the the views of Alberta Health Services or Vermillion Hospital. Um, th- yeah, this is, this is just a, a, a chat, be, be between us and I know it's it's kind of choppy water. I, I went down some rapids today on my stand-up paddleboard, ma- managed to stay afloat. So I'm I'm hopefully gonna <laughs> gonna um, yeah do do the same tonight.
0: Well, I always say. Um, <coughs> You know you, you hear the things going on in the states or over in Europe or wherever and I always go, well it hasn't it hasn't happened here in Canada yet or it hasn't happened in Saskatchewan yet, right, right. and'm I'm, I'm talking about all the things through uh, the pandemic, talking about Ocean Wiseblatt, a young kid getting arrested on in Calgary for skating on an outdoor pond and right. and things like that. Uh, there was a lady arrested in Lloyd um, for not wearing a mask in uh, the uh, indoor pool. And now, once again, I don't know the full stories that go mm-hmm. on, but when they start hitting close to home like that, guys really, you know, um, they really got to take measure of what's going on out there. And so for you to po- poke your head up and walk in this room, I, I fully understand, you know, um, what's, what's at stake here for you. So I do appreciate, uh, you coming in. Now I got to ask, uh, going back to South Africa, mm-hmm. you said, doctors were losing their jobs for standing up for trying to get the right treatments into south africa
1: well they they were yeah there was just huge um pushback from from the government the the healthcare system and with threat to their jobs um you know people who were medical directors of of hospitals and that were were um losing their jobs i was i was young out of my depth the day i started intern on my internal medicine rotation there the internist l- resigned, and they didn't have a, a stand-in, so, so I managed that ward on my own. I was <laughs> kind of <laughs> a little before Google, so I <laughs> yeah, carried my, back, my <laughs> backpack full of <laughs> textbooks, and um, yeah, it was a humbling year for, sh- for sure. But yeah, doc- doctors that were standing up just trying to get treatment for their patients um, were, yeah, were, were losing their, b- their, their income, really.
0: I'm curious what you thought about that uh back then mm-hmm. and now like looking back on it what you think now.
1: Yeah, I I think I mean they were just a few incredibly brave and and isolated people especially in my my neck of the woods where I was working in KwaZulu Natal. One thing, I think, because we didn't have the internet, and that and there wasn't the opportunity to network. Yeah, absolutely. When we were in remote locations, pretty isolated. And, I mean, I just wouldn't have known what to do to, you know, how do you advocate for it? For you wouldn't have known. I, You're tuned. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we, we had those old Nokia with the black, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Those original Nokia phones, and, I mean... Email. So I uh, so I think that's one thing that that's happened now is with with the internet and um, th- there's a real networking and collaboration happening and yeah.
0: So understanding you've seen what a government can do to predecessors of yours and you've yeah. seen now what they're doing not only in our country but in other country uh but in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just. For those who don't know who Dr. Byron Bridal is, you should just listen to him talk. Uh, He talked to government and listen to his testimony about how much harassment he's faced since having a five-minute interview and just a few words he said and how much harassment has has come his way. He's a very well-spoken man. Understanding all that, because I know you're well-read on this, why stick your head up? I mean, you're a young guy. You got got kids. Well,
1: there's nothing... um for me to gain personally in terms of career, um, to be honest, but I take seriously um, the ethics of medicine, and I think we. N- I my goal is we need to learn to dialogue. If if you start censoring one half of the conversation, um, that you know to get back to South Africa, I grew up under apartheid South Africa. I was probably 16 years old when. Um, there was a transition, and um, and Man- Mandela came into power. So for the first 16, 17 years, I, I went to my, you know first two thirds of my schooling was in a white only school. Um, I grew up, so I grew up under an authoritarian regime that censored everything. And the thing is, we didn't know because we were I was in the suburbs. You went to school. Um, we ha- had our TV. All of our channels were um, government channels. We had three TV stations. It was all our news. Everything was censored. Um, the books that you could get in a library were all approved by government. Um, your mail coming in from overseas would be read. If you know, if if you had the wrong contacts or whatever, and you know, your your mail could be redacted or read and as a kid i didn't know that was happening um we couldn't go into soweto people from soweto, you know so i didn't know that there were the the south african police and military were you know that that soweto was like an occupied state we had no idea that any of that was happening the version of history that we learned in school kind of um spoke about the the Afri- the you know it was just one perspective and to so so I'm, I'm very concerned about censorship and I, I won't I, I won't back down for that. It's just we need to we need to just pause and reflect and think, what are we doing? Where are we going with this? And, you know, I think in, in Proverbs, it, it, it says there's wisdom in the counsel of many. If you choose yes, man, as your counselors, So anyone in authority, if the only voices you are listening to are people who are too scared to say anything that you will not approve of, you have a huge blind spot. And that's why I I wrote this book, Crucial Conversations. It's an awesome book. Um, They they should give you some advertising (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, fee. fee, um, And in AHS, in, in medical leadership, we... Know, you we're, we're recommended to do this training specifically and, and read this book. And it's tools for talking when stakes are high, so much like this conversation we're having today. And so there's a, a little section on dialogue that I'd like to read. Sure. When it comes to risky, controversial, and emotional conversations, skilled people find a way to get all relevant information from themselves and others out into the open. That's it. At the core of every successful conversation lies the free flow of relevant information. People openly and honestly express their opinions, share their feelings, and articulate their theories. They willingly and capably share their views even when their ideas are controversial or unpopular. It's the one thing that, and precisely what Kevin and the other extremely effective communicators we studied, we're routinely able to achieve. Now, to put a label on this spectacular talent, it's called dialogue. Dialogue, noun, the free flow of meaning between two or more people. We have lost the ability to dialogue. And that can take us down a very dangerous road. And, you know, people that are, um, if you silence a proportion of, of society, you might think it's for the good of everyone, but where are you in five years' time? What what voices you know? And that's why I want someone who I don't disagree with. I want them to be free to speak, because that gives me the freedom to speak. And I have a res- so I have a right to speak, but I have a responsibility to listen. And there needs to be empathy in that. And if I I mean, it's crazy that this seems unconventional, what I'm saying, or or radical. Th- this is a foundation of Western liberal democracy, of freedom, of a multi-party democracy. If you start silencing a certain portion of a population, you're going off into a, another form of um, of government and culture, and I grew up under a fascist regime, I know what it looks like, and I, if I think back, I'm upset with my, I mean, I have ancestry from a British, French, German, um, Jewish, Hungarian, so pretty much a mix, and the British and French makes me half Canadian. But. I'm upset that they were so short-sighted, short-sighted that our great-grandfathers uh, from the National Party, um, even though my grandfather, who was Afrikaans, really stood against that, I mean, he, um, but they, what were they thinking? Did they think they could continue that oppressive regime and opp- 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 oppress a huge portion of the, the population inf- infinitely? So ultimately, they, 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 for, for that short-term gain of, um, of their short-term, wealthy, white, sup, sup, supreme nation, they really shot their, their grandkids, great-grandkids, in the foot. And there is a, a diaspora of South Africans all over the world. You'll find, you know, I've got cousins in London and uh, Melbourne, Australia, um we we and it 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 goes back to to those decisions so i <laughs> this is so crucial we i think we we're, we're sitting you know we i mean a lot of people say covid is like a pause and we can use it to make wise decisions in going forward i think we haven't we we've, we've we like paused but with our ears closed and our eyes shut listening in, in our little echo chambers in, on, in social m- media and only listening to one side of a story. And we're going full steam ahead down a road and we don't even know where it leads. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm making sense, but, but I take that really seriously. And that's why I, I'm speaking out not as protest, not because I want to be political, I don't. I would honestly rather be rowing on a river or hiking in the mountains. Um, but we need to learn to dialogue. And if we can't do it, um, I'm concerned about where we're going to be in five, ten years time. And especially if, you know, a lot of the, the voices that we're silencing, it's one thing if it's extreme voices and, you know, the bell curve, right? So where's the camera? There's a the bell curve and most people are in the middle and it's like hockey players, right? If to get in the NHL, you're in, to get in the NHL, you're, you're in that, um, you're an outlier, like, um, Malcolm Gladwell in his, in his book, you're in that 3% or less. What's it in? Um, but most people will be there in the middle somewhere. Most hockey players far from NHL level. Um, and then you'll get people that just can't skate or hit a puck, whatever on the other, on the other end. But, but, Everything kind of has a bell curve with with anything from height to weight to um, And what we're doing, we're not silencing and censoring the extreme voices. we're silence we're silencing and censoring pretty middle down the road people like Dr. Pierre Cory, I- the ICU physician in the States. Um, he's like middle like spot
0: on he is not fringe um dr bridal is you, you listen to him doc he ain't extreme at all actually i was just gonna say like um when i listen to you talk it's it's amazing that more people like yourself aren't and i shouldn't say that there are lots of people out there doing it but on mainstream media they don't this type of talk gets pushed to the back burner or silenced or tossed around and, and, and not pushed out to a lot of, uh, a lot of people. And th- the ability to produce and talk about and push fear has never been more evident in my lifetime yep. than right now and still going on. It is still going on. And it's, it's even coming from the opposite side now, right? Where, the uh, the vaccine, uh, if you, if you, the people who don't want to get a vaccine, even their fear-mongering push on why you shouldn't, like, it's palpable at all places. It just is. And yeah. the ability to just talk through it's It's been, the last month, Andrew, has been really cool to watch because there's been more doctors and more um, specialized people stepping mm-hmm. up and talking. And they're very much like you. They have, to, uh, they have to back it up by talking like, I'm not this, I'm not this, here's my credentials, blah, blah, blah. And then they talk. And they're talking exactly like you and just, just very common sense, which is like enjoyable to hear. And honestly, it gets through to me way more than pushing the fear. The thing is, is a lot of it doesn't grow up the social chain or the social media chain because Mm -hmm. social media feeds off of uh, the extreme takes on both sides and they skyrocket and you got to do your own research and cut through some of the BS to get to where you are. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear your take of where you lived in apartheid. You're not the, I've had a, a chiropractor in town here, Fred Murray. Who, um, I do archive interviews. And if people haven't listened to that, you should go back. And we dig into him growing up in South Africa and living in apartheid. Because it just, it blows my brain that more people wouldn't stand up against that. But now you feel what a government trying to censor and push a we, message really feels like. We
1: did not know. That's the thing. That message never got to us. And I remember my dad was a pilot. I went with him as a teenager. I went with him to London on a trip and there were he took me to the South African embassy and there were people protesting outside and I'm like what's what's that about? And yeah, he he had a conversation with me about what's happening in, you know, in the rest of the world against and we had no idea that it, it was just because we lived in this little censored, curated bubble. And it was, you know, the only, we we'd only heard one side of the story and that they try to perpetuate that system. And I think once they, and this is interesting, in 1994, no, it was 1992, there was um, a, re- a referendum to, because to, only whites could vote, Right. So there was a referendum whether we should open up the vote or not. But now you must understand the white population was less than 20% of the population. So if you open up the vote, you're giving away power. Guaranteed. And there were some kind of far left-wing parties whose slogan was like, kill the farmer or let's push the whites into the sea. So it was scary. But it was an overwhelming yes vote we need to we need to we choose democracy we're going to open up the vote and there was that two-year process mandela was released there's an awesome movie called invictus i um, around that with a springbok rugby team at the time we won the that w- the world cup that that you know after opening up it was an amazing time and it was like having you know having your eyes opened but until that referendum i mean we were just living in a bubble and and I think people who a lot of people who were awake had to actually flee. Um a lots lots of people, like there's a famous poet who stood up, Afrikaans poet Brayton Breitenbach, and they, they lived in exile. Many folk left left the country, lived in, in exile. Many musicians, there were um lots of South African jazz musicians, um so lots and so they got the advocacy out there, but living in the in the country it was kinda like the Truman show. <laughs> Yeah. Like
0: the Jim Carrey Truman Show. Yeah, I mean, that's...
1: If you live in a censored world, right? I mean, and you think, wait a minute, there, there's something going on here. But, yeah. I mean, that's an extreme example. But it's...
0: But it's I not... Live but that, it, right? But I mean, it's like... How many times... I'm sure my listeners think like me at times. You just go, mm-hmm. like, someone's just off. Like, this, this feels... Like, what is going on? And I have... Heck, I... I think all of us are pretty rational people, but when they start trying to divide you and push out these like things, you just, there's no way to like, and then they don't allow you to talk and you're all like, you know, think of some of the stuff we've had to deal with over the last 16 months, right? Like nobody in your house, anywhere you go, there's a mask on, no congregating, all these things. I can go down the list of Canadian uh, rights and freedoms, right? And then you don't talk, and all you see is social media pushing the extremes and media pushing the, the same numbers over and over and over again. And, I mean, that's why I go back to this fear and the stress and everything else. Like, it, mm. it is palpable. You could cut it with a knife. It was so thick there for so long. And now, you know, it feels like we're coming out of it. But I don't know. It's It's a strange, strange time to be alive. And maybe there's always been strange times to be alive. Yep. Heck, you certainly lived in a country where it was... Um, difficult, shall yeah. we say, like to to come out of that and see that must have been an odd sensation to look back and and go, wow, like I had no idea, and now to see what's happening in Canada must be almost surreal.
1: Well, it's it's certainly unexpected, but it's not just kind of... It, it's the world, right? Yes, and this I is think true. Sh- sure, democracy is messy, and it's it's not that efficient. A, a totalitarian system is very efficient, like incredibly if you've got a leader who doesn't have to worry about it, the four-year election cycle if you know you're 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 in for the next 20 25 years you can play the long game you know so how just on economic how do you compete with China economically with their system and I, and um, but we need to reflect and not just you know, Im- embrace things like surveillance. And there's a book, um, Yuval Noah Hariri, he's a historian and a philosopher. And he talks on, he's got a book called 20, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And he's talking about this um, fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. I mean, we're going through explosive change on so many levels. So we have the biotech level, um, MRNA vaccines fall into that, that category: computing, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, um, space exploration, you know, digital currencies, which open up with everyone connected, which opens up the, the possibility of a um, centralized digital currencies, that sort of thing. There's so much possibility there, but there's also like any huge change. If you just run into it blindly, you know, you, you're going to hit some walls or fall into some holes. So he says this is the time we should not be letting shareholders Decide. who are looking for a, a quarterly um, profits, you know, th- this short quarterly profit cycle and stock prices, like they're running so much of, of the innovation, which is great. You need that. You need capitalism to to push innovation, right? But if if they have, if, if it's people with the big bucks that have all the voice and you have your philosophers and pastors and just your old people who've lived, you know, your elderly, instead of being locked up in long-term care homes, if they're, if they actually have a voice and say, well, I would I would just pause and think, what do we want? And is this going to take us there? You know, not just, oh, this, the next phone is so cool. It's got three cameras. Let's, you know, and woohoo, let's just full speed ahead. Like, where are we going? Where are we going? Putting our kids in front of screens. Like, they're being raised by algorithms. Like, that's They're going to think their whole mental makeup is going to be different from my, like, from you know, over over one or two generations the the change in, in um, culture and um, on so many levels is, th- the change is so huge, so you need to pause, reflect and think about, what's the game plan here? We've got all these amazing tools, we've got AI but are we just going to Go full speed ahead because we want to beat China, or are we going to pause and reflect and say, "What do we want from this?" And are we just looking for a comfortable, convenient life where we can just sit back and press a button and everything's done for us? Or do we actually want community and um, freedom? For instance, <laughs> you know, and just you know, what are what are our values? You know. And and you know our culture has. We, I grew up in a Commonwealth country, too. You know, British, French, uh, um, European ancestry, um, and I grew up in a. I, I have close, close, dear friends who um, who are native First Nations in South Africa, and I really respect their view on life. They're much less individualistic. They they actually. If they're not part of community they they struggle to make sense of their life and they there's a word in um in in South African language called Ubuntu and it means um, "I am because we are right so you know this things that are r- truly valuable, like family community um and our freedoms that have taken hundreds of years to, to you know, to get to this point, to curate, yeah, to, to bring curate about, and, yeah. and bring about, w- we could be just, you just know, destroying it, throwing, and throwing it out the window, th- throwing, literally throwing it out the window, because of, we're chasing stock prices, you know, or, um, so, so I, I think we need to pause, reflect, we need, the old people to speak, the elders, we, we talk about that all the time, you know, the elders, but, they don't have a voice. Um, we need we need to listen. We need to imp- start conversations and dialogues where people have opposing opinions because that's normal, right? Especially in a diverse country like Canada, and we need to reflect and and think before we just bar- barge ahead.
0: I like how you bring up uh, the elderly. I I read a book. Uh, about a big bear uh, chief around this area, right? Indigenous tribe. And um, one of the things that I found interesting, I brought out this example over and over and over again because as a young guy, I always thought, you know, why do you want an old guy leading? You, you For sure you want like a guy in the prime of his life. I don't know mm. what the prime is. We can argue about that, but let's call it 35 to 50. Somewhere in there is the prime of your life. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's younger. Maybe it's older. But you kind of get the idea. And then in the book, it talked about uh, tribes having two chiefs. Okay. One one is, uh, and I'll, I'll butcher this, so I apologize to anyone who knows a little better than me, but one is uh, one of them being uh, one of wisdom, so an elderly person mm-hmm. in peace times, uh, understood and had seen things over a long chunk of time right right? like things change things Mm -hmm. go in cycles um you know for them dealing with the the harshness of the weather knowing where to go to hide from that maybe maybe understanding the the cycle of the buffalo where they're going to be that type Mm -hmm. of thing right but he's seen things over longer than a five-year span Right. You know he's he's yeah. got wisdom on his side, yes. and one of the cool things about being in here, Andrew, is being doing interviews for the archives. I've got to interview people who are ninety-nine years old, or hmm. and and can tell you they don't remember money, right? Like think about that. We didn't have wow. money. That's like whoa. That's wow. that's that's it's like taking a time machine and going back in the past and, mm-hmm. and hearing some stories. But then the the other the other uh, chief they had the other leader was a wartime one and it was the guy that i think of right the 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 energetic go out we need to win this or we don't survive kind of thing Mm -hmm. and they had the two and i I hear what you're saying because that that makes a lot of sense to me right like you know what is going on like maybe we just need guys like we've we've got all this data on x you know i I want to pull us back into um I find this chat so fascinating. just understanding now your background. Um, this is what I do. I love hearing this story and and mm-hmm. where your where your brain goes and and some of the experiences have you had that are shaping why you're sitting in this room right now. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. i'm I'm so curious about um what's going on right now is there other doctors in the area are you just on an island you got a little flag and everybody thinks you're the crazy man for coming and sitting in here and wanting to talk about kind of you know the the vaccine and some of the rollouts that have been going on and 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 kids getting the vaccination and things like that are you on an island or are there tons of people just like there's tons of people like me that want to talk about it but do not want to get in front of a hot mic and talk about it um i've
1: many colleagues um have shared things with me that, that they would not feel free to, to share openly, for sure. And I think one, one big issue is, you know, clinicians who are actually treating patients have a very different perspective and even a, a different ethos and foundation from public health. And one needs to understand this. Public health is important. And up until now, public health would have been, you know, you focused on your, your your general health promotion and health prevention. So you have your vaccination programs, and these are developed over many years and that, you know, to, with the aim of, of preventing illness. Um, and then you would have little outbreaks of, you know, Hep A or c diff or you know you have little maybe a maybe a specific bug and mrsa in a long-term home and and then it's it's kind of appropriate to go and lock that down and it's it's like firefighting right or um and you you focused on these things and so to have a, a global pandemic you know that that public health model i think we need to up you know as we as we exit the emergency because the emergency is really really over um, or at least there's we have a lot of data now, a lot of understanding um, as opposed to early 2020. Yeah, So we need to think, okay, is the, is the public health model um, missing something? Is it lacking? And I think if there were more clinicians that had a voice, people like um, Pierre Corey, who's a frontline doctor, they're part of the, front the FLCCC, frontline critical care um, clinicians. They're in the US, and they were an ICU team. And they were treating people on the ground. So if you have someone on a ventilator that could die in the next couple of days, multi-organ failure doing doing poorly and you're an experienced ICU physician and now their team right he he wrote, he's uh, one of the authors of um the point of care ultrasound textbook in ICU so he helped to pioneer one of the game changing um growth areas in ICU medicine and critical care medicine other people on his team there's um w- other authors on his paper and other other physicians in the FLCCC um, Dr. Malik is incidentally or also originally South African. He's the second most published ICU physician in the world. So to call him fringe or to silence him, it's just counterintuitive completely. And now they, so they clinicians. They have a sick patient in front of them. They can't, and short, sure, just because they want to treat this patient doesn't mean they're anti-vaxxers, right? That's absurd like vac- vaccines are one of the pillars of a pandemic response makes sense just like prevention of spread is those are two pillars and they're both important and you need to figure out and you need to go and look down like how do you do quarantines and that's going to be a huge debate over the next years how do we effectively do quarantines and do lockdowns work you know how do you use masks because i know lots of problems with them that they're actually not used properly and Um, And I'm not advocating for any position there, but we're going to reflect on that, go through lots of data and we need to figure out, okay, how do we do this in future without destroying the middle class and shutting, you know, um, pushing everyone into debt and locking up kids at home and stopping sport for, you know, that's a vital part of of a healthy lifestyle for a kid. And, And we can we can talk about that later. Um, so, those two pillars, but in the meantime, this ICU physician who's got a, a, w- a m- m- huge amount of experience, has a sick patient in front of them, you're going to try and treat that patient. So, you're going to, like a clinician, you're you're a, a detective. Um, you've got a unique patient in front of you with a condition, but there's always individual factors so you're going to interpret your you're going to do and I- take a history look at comorbidities you're going to do a physical examination you're going to do special investigations blood tests and scans and all sorts and then you look at all that and you think okay so this is going on it looks like this this looks like a hyperinflammatory response centered in the lungs and now affecting the kidneys and they're in acute renal failure secondary to that that and um And then, oh, and we've got blood clotting going on here. And you don't have to wait for a peer-reviewed study sponsored by a big pharmaceutical company before you give a blood thinner or before you you use steroids. And they were incidentally using steroids long before dexamethasone and prednisone were approved by the WHO and came trickle down in protocols because it takes time for, for big agencies to sift through data and... And they were told at the time, you're doing the wrong thing. And um, it, appears it turns out they were doing the right thing. And they were, doing it, they were ahead of the game. But it's because they had a sick patient in front of them. And they were using their toolbox to treat that patient. And we've, we've got this pharmacopoeia at our disposal. Just like a hockey team, you, you know, you've got a set of, of tools. You've got a toolbox. And as clinicians, we've always been free to use that within an ethical framework, always considering risk and benefit. And they've pioneered um, along with, you know, actually treating um, people with, with COVID-19 with a lot of repurposed drugs that, inst- un- you know, are cheap, which is a good thing, but it's a not, not a good thing for shareholders and, and, and for big pharmaceutical companies of patent cheap drugs. And we can talk about that more. But I think the perspective from a clinician as opposed to a public health, um, where they're sitting at a desk looking at numbers, you're looking at population level things. So you're always looking at it's it's numbers. You don't have a real person in front of you. And that's a game changer if it's a real person. And I can share some real stories if if you like. I um, would through, honestly through
0: I, I would I would certainly love to hear some real stories, I think, for the area specifically. To hear some real stories kind of brings it home. It's 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 right. It's uh, one thing to hop on and hear about, uh, um, oh, Francis, Doctor Francis Christian at a sass tomb, which like is literally right there. Yeah. But for some reason, it doesn't. You know, people are oh yeah, right. To have a guy stand up in our area, in this area, and and want to talk about it, want to share some real stories. I'd love to hear some.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm just. I think we need to start dialoguing um, and otherwise we won't be able to look at data from an unbiased perspective. Right. So two stories that really impacted me personally and actually made, I think that it's a big reason why I've, um, maybe here today and before I share them, just a personal story. Um, I, I have three, three kids, 11, 13, 15. I'm very blessed with my family. I have a lovely wife who um, homeschools. So, you know, and that will people already put me in a box because of that. But we just she's awesome and she pours so much into them. And because of, you know, there's so many resources out there these days. So I know we can give them just the best education possible at, at home and um and we're part of a, a, a good community in that, and we have a, we do a lot of things together. We ski together. All three of my kids went down a double black diamond with me <laughs> um, this last winter um, at Lake Louise, and it's it's I mean, I'm I'm speechless. It's it's a dream. Um, but my middle son, um, Thomas, had leukemia when he was four. And that pulled the, the carpet from under my feet. It was, I was halfway through my um, master of medicines in family medicine and three years of chemo. So I, I've been on the other side. He was treated in the hospital where I trained. I've seen side effects of drugs in children. And for leukemia that would have killed him, you have a huge threshold for side effects. The side effects were crazy. Chemo—it's kind of like I say, I mean, chemotherapy is like—it's like bombing Berlin to try and get Hitler, but the, the amount of co- collateral damage is huge, and um, and that's why it's uh, exciting that there's new you know through like mRNA technology for cancer is very exciting, and it's going to be a, you know a, um, because. The side effects of chemo, and on a, on a child, and so three years of intensive chemo, and he's he's such a legend, and got through it. But one, a couple things we we learned: fear is the enemy, right? So I think that's one big lesson here. If there's ever, an, if we go through this again, let's do everything we can to reduce fear, not increase it. Um, fear is the enemy. Um, when when it comes to walking a road like that, especially a three-year road, I had to be there for him. And there's a much bigger picture than just medicine. The, the the oncologists they were awesome, the pediatricians, but they had a very narrow focus, right? But there's a there's a much bigger picture to health, and nutrition is I- important. the the Im- the emotional, mental side of things is really important. The spiritual side of things is critical. And we we couldn't have got through it without prayer, without, um, and I you know peace, without the peace of God that keeps fear out. It was just it's real when when you walk a road like that. And so I have a different perspective. So you talk about colleagues, um, but I think it's a I, I think it's a family medicine perspective. It's a it's at, you know looking at bigger picture of health a, a bigger picture of um, like the the person sitting in front of you that patient they're not just an organ it's a it's a unique person with a context with a family with fears and beliefs and one needs to listen and explore those things and so two patients one was a 15 year old girl that I know I coach my kids soccer now we haven't done soccer for two seasons I was on call middle of the night she came in um, with a medication overdose a suicide attempt and we see it often in that age often you know it's after a bad breakup or bullying online or or whatever and they take but they don't really want to die they it's it's, it's more of a cry for help thing in that that age group especially a teenage girl but what shocked me was this girl that I know from soccer who's usually at that time it was say late April um, if she was on the soccer field she would be the happiest kid in town that's what um, doesn't have the happiest home but now she's been locked up in this locked up alone at home on on a computer screen who knows what she's watching Um, what's what is breaking her down there and ends up in emerge in the middle of the night. If she was playing soccer, there is no way she would have been there. Uh, there's just no way. And I'll I'll stick my my neck out. And, and she said to me when I spoke to her, she said, I want to die. That was a wake up call. Like, what are we do- what have we done? What are we doing? And can we reflect and just think can't we just be honest and say okay like we made a few mistakes and next time we need to do more to protect the vulnerable, to protect people in long term cares um, to protect the isolated and and lonely and, and for the kids right now a COVID infection for her would be zero risk right practically I mean there is a small risk like being hit by a car or getting a concussion at sports or like one of my kids falling on a double black diamond and breaking a neck their life has risk right so we can't all like stay safe like we need to think someone said you know we used to value freedom and we would kind of risk safety for that now we're willing to give away freedom for the sake of safety and how does that what does that safety even look like is a kid alone at home in front of a computer screen on the internet where she can be exposed to trawlers and who knows what or a 13 year old boy that should be playing hockey on a playing a like 18 plus violent team game are they
0: safe let's put it this way andrew i'm 35 yeah being stuck at home and i get this is healthy like for me it's healthy to talk people but trying to deal with everything you can find on the internet uh, even in regards to what we're talking about is over it's over fucking whelming. like yeah. it's just and i'm a grown-ass adult that's supposed to be protecting my children and everything else and i'm trying to steer through you talk the the little rapids of the i feel like i'm out in the middle of the ocean in a little wee paddling boat just trying to hold on here at times right like and i'm the and i'm the the dad of the family right yeah like Kids are not equipped. They're not. No if, for what if, we're, we're we're going on. And on top of that, we all have an onus on ourselves to stand up and be like, This doesn't feel right. Like, you know, I got a good friend in Ken Rutherford who always tells me, you know, the government works for us. You know, that's what it is. If we don't like it, we gotta voice our concerns and, and start to let people know this isn't right. Yeah. And hearing about what you're talking about is just another one in the list of things that doesn't get reported. It just doesn't.
1: Yeah, and this is just really important dialogue. Like, So we're, we're keeping our kids safe, but what th- there's been no conversation about how to keep a 15 or 14-year-old boy who's h- now doing school at home on his own with internet access every day where he can click a couple of clicks and he's on a, on, on a hardcore porn site where was the effort in keeping that kid safe i don't know how i would have done that like if if i was 14 it's alone at home on a computer with internet access would i've been listening would i've been in math class or what I, you know where um yeah or violent you know violent tv games if, um just whereas kids should be out playing hockey or whatever and sure maybe i st- in indoor rinks were not the safest place to be, or, or could could be um, areas for spread, but there there's like how many sloughs and ponds and dams in all you of know, Canada, all over Canada. Like, where how much money and there's so much money printing going on. If there was a little subsidy for each town to pay for a farmer to keep a little a pond clear, with with a skid steer, and put up a couple nets, and kids can go and change in their their parents' car and you just play non-contact hockey where you know you, you figure it out. How do you play ho- hockey and, and keep two meters? You would come up with some rules and kids could be out there having fun. Being
0: well, fresh air. The, leg- be- the best one I saw was, was tag. And I was like, oh, how do you play tag with little kids? And they use noodles. And I'm like, that's still fun. That was still, actually I was playing tag with the kids, yeah. our kids. With noodles, and they thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And Now, I don't know. That doesn't translate exactly to hockey, but that's called being creative about the situation.
1: Yeah. And I think like one of the challenges as a soccer coach with kids to, to stop kids bunching up, and actually if you watch a European football <laughs> team, how they're spread out over the yeah. field and the passing, and it's just beautiful to get kids to do that. Now, this was a, actually an opportunity to t- teach kids real soccer because you want to socially distance. On a good in a good soccer game, right? Um, so I think we missed opportunities there. I think we, um, kids have, there's been a huge disservice to children. So there was one story. The other one was a um, lady in her 70s, and because I work in a, a small town, now I do, I primarily do anesthesia. So I've also been in a bit of a bubble. And we've been focused on surgical catch-up, so we've been intensely... You know, we've been, been doing a lot more surgeries than usual to get through numbers. And it's kind of a, we've been very fortunate that, that we haven't been sh- shut down um, except in that initial time. So we've been pretty efficient at, at our hospital. But it's also kind of sheltered me from frontline care of, of people with COVID. But I do do, I, w- I work in the emergency department too. And because I do anesthesia, I'm called if for intubations. So I was called for an intubation. Um, lady in her seventies, very very obese, and obviously that's a huge risk factor. So she had AIDS at age and um, obesity, and I know I know her because I'd she's difficult. Yeah, I'd, I'd met her in the hospital before through another encounter, and I know her daughter and I know her grandkids. And that's one of the challenges in working, and blessings of working in a small town is is you you actually know your patients, and you you get to know people. You um, they're not just a number. And it makes it very real. And her lungs were failing, and the the, the, the ICU team in the city had said we we need to put her on a ventilator, we need to intubate her and, and ventilate her. But we all know the prognosis when you go that route. Especially with her weight, um, the the prognosis was really low, and it was this a, a very very touching and and challenging time with watching her daughter there, knowing this could be the last time she she speaks to her mom, and they prayed together, and there were tears. And she knew, she might, she might not wake up. She might wake, you know. She'll either wake. She could wake up in a, a hospital in the city. Um, she could wake up on the other side. She might. And the biggest thing, when I spoke to her about it and about, um, she said, she's she's okay with with dying um, and ready and you know, that peace. But she wants to spend more time with her grandkids. And that's why she was willing to, to go. She wanted to go that, that route. And it all went well and I s- outside and the ambulance transfer went well. And But but once she was in the city, a couple days later, they actually told her daughter that her prognosis was zero. And now I haven't spoken to the physicians, so I've just spoken to the daughter because I know her. But she said, um, so that's from, from her side, she said, they said, Zero chance of her making it, so in other words, we need to start talking about turning off machines soon. so she said, Listen i've heard about ivermectin i've I've heard there've been people in the states that have been on a ventilator they've been given ivermectin, and they made it and 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 quite quite quickly and sh- now again, this is secondhand information from the daughter but and when when I followed up with her, but she was in tears, she said. The doctor that she dealt with, who's a specialist, said, there is no chance that we will give ivermectin because it is not scientific. So Dr. Pierre Corey, who is an ICU physician of huge stature, he's a he's David, McDavid. And he's published a, a review on the Ivermectin for prevention and treatment of, of COVID-19, which is it's a groundbreaking review. When I read it, it was just like this is awesome. And he also thought when when he when they got they we started using it and when they collected more and more data and then they started seeing observational data in in third world countries where now observational data is usually it's not the gold standard, a randomized um, clinical trial is the gold standard, but if you've got observational s- data over a whole country like Peru, who rolled out ivermectin over eight cities, so you're doing a study on millions. And when you get the same graphs in eight cities, and when m- statisticians go and and kind of do their best to iron out any biases and um, d- you know other other confounding variables, so that it's the only difference between. Um, populations is whether you got ivermectin or not and um, to look at that data to see mortality just plummet like a stone and the same happened in India and India the WHO actually recommended against ivermectin use in India when they were going through the third wave and we all know of the Indian or Delta variant variant and you know and there's concern for our fall whether it's gonna come this way and, and the vac- how well the vaccines are gonna work and, and all of that. And um, so they're going through this wave and they're a country of over a billion. So, I mean, you can imagine the death toll. I mean, there were stories of bodies floating down the Ganges River.
0: Well, um, and we saw the videos of them <coughs> burning, burning people because yeah. they had nowhere to put them.
1: Yeah, and now ivermectin has been out for more than 30 years. Here we all know it as a veterinary medication, but in the tropical countries it's used, um, it's actually a Nobel Prize winning medication for eradicating river blindness and elephantiasis in a lot of tropical areas. So there were communities in some tropical, third world poor countries and tropical areas where the majority of people like, I think age 40 or so would actually go blind from these parasites and ivermectin completely eradicated that. So it's been given. There's more than four billion doses have been given to humans, and it has got some of the best safety data in the world. On the WHO safety, their um, pharmacovigilance data, they've got a a database. And this this spans like over over 30 years. Um, I think 20, there's something like 20 deaths and 5,000 adverse events in over four billion doses. So uh, and it's off patent so it's dirt cheap costs a few dollars it's accessible in third world countries because they use it for for parasites now people say oh but that's just it's obviously doesn't work because it works for parasites no the reason people started using it and if one honest goes and listens to um there's a great talk by dr Pierre corey on the dark horse
0: podcast, podcast yeah Brett Weinstein.
1: Where, where, where he he actually explains it and there, there was some scientist who's, who was doing studies on repurposed drugs and looking at, at effectiveness against different viruses, because we haven't made that much progress in antivirals. And so there was data out there that ivermectin kills a virus, c- kills SARS-CoV-2 um, in a petri dish. So that was reason to start using it now just because it works in a Petri dish doesn't mean it's going to work in a, yeah. a human body. You might not get the same concentration, etc. But if you've got a, a known drug that's been used on that scale, more than four billion doses, that's r- cheap. The only problem is though, and it's Achilles heel has been that no one's going to make a huge amount of money from it. So you, c- you bring me to. So, yeah, so, so, and just to remember that story, that, so, a, a patient m- that my patient was they would not give ivermectin to someone who had zero chance of living. So, what risk was there? What cost to the healthcare system? We're, we're already, I mean, we've spent a huge amount to, to go to all the eff- effort of ICU care. So, a few extra dollars like, what harm could possibly have been done? And I feel it's incredibly arrogant and that to say that or to like because because this her daughter was in tears imagine and she made it in the end she survived imagine if she had died no the next ivermectin? day um no so i mean and with, after given being given a zero percent prognosis so
0: so is that is that just to maybe even try and defend some of the doctors is that because of the pressure above them to not administer something that hasn't been given approval?
1: Well, that's when. So that's when I looked into it. Um, she asked me, but so I went and and I got um, Pierre Cory's review. I mean, it, it wasn't published yet. It was published in the American Journal of Therapeutics, in May June edition. So it has been published now, but the pre published there was the earlier reports were were available and. I'm good friends with uh, um, a pharmacist in South Africa who was, he was the head pharmacist for a whole health region. So I, I trust his view on, on drugs and he was giving, he was giving me information about ivermectin early on. Um, and I think, you know, third world countries that didn't have as much access to vaccine have been experimenting with it a lot more and have been more free to experiment with it. Um, so I started reading up on it, and I was blown away. And then I thought, but if all this data is out there, why are we not using it? Yeah, it's, it's sadly not recommended. And th- there's a, a very thorough document. Um, page three, it says it's not recommended to, preve- to prevent or treat COVID. More research is needed. Um, the original document was out in February. It was um, updated in April and they do continually update when new studies. So they're looking at all the new studies. So I've actually, as an advocate for for early treatment, um, which by the way, I do not see why why it should threaten a vaccine rollout because that patient in ICU or a patient who's just been diagnosed, it's too late for a vaccine, right? So that patient, and as a clinician who sees, sees real patients, um you want to be able to give some s- them something and um you know y- and the, the more tools the better the more options the the better so and i understand more now what, what some of the issues are but but anyway so so it's still not recommended I, the last time i looked was sure. a couple of days ago but if you read through the actual cuz on page 3 the summary recommendations say it's not recommended. So I went and spoke to our hospital's clinical pharmacologist, and she showed her Piercore's review, and she was like, wow, this is awesome. This is a game changer. And and I said, will you find out more if we can access it? Because I'd also been to all the pharmacies in town, and their college was saying we can't use it. And I showed them the review, and um, you know, they're like, yeah, that looks great, but our college says it's not licensed for that purpose. But we always do stuff off license. I can use propofol, which killed Michael Jackson, to treat a migraine in in emerge, based on a couple of studies that that shows that it that it works. Um, so this is it's off this license. Is, so this
0: is something new to you then, like. Well, as, I, this is this it
1: perplexed me. So so I went and went through that whole document, and now I'm not. On, on the level of a scientific advisory group or, you know, I'm a generalist, okay? Um, so I don't pretend to know more than I do. I'm very aware of my limitations, but as far as I can see, but, you know, but, I, but then I trust voices like Pierre Cori and his team who are ICU heavyweights. Now, if you're going to read that whole document... They mentioned in there, I think there were seven trials. Six of them are randomized controlled trials. Now, a big, a big issue, people have said safety is a problem. Now, I don't see why safety of ivermectin would be a problem, but we can go into that um, because it's been out for so long. And if you look at the WHO safety data, it's actually amazing. Um, and the other thing is that they say a lot of the trials They're not big trials. They're done in third world countries. They're not done in North America. They're not done in Europe. So then the question is, why have we not been doing lots of trials? We've had how much time now? Um, You know, Pierre Corey was, I think he presented to U.S. Congress in November of 2020 already about ivermectin, expecting it. He, He thought the pandemic's over. And he was just blown away.
0: At the response. That
1: there was just silence from... From the public health agencies and all that, so we've had time, right? So but if you go and, and but sure, if, if trials, if the quality of trials is poor, you can't always act on that, that data. but I, I went and read, read through that, and there are six randomized controlled trials there that that scientific advisory group actually say are um, fair to good quality. And they show mortality benefit. They show ICU admission benefit. Um, they show effective prevention. So there was one interesting study in in Pierre Corey's review where, in Argentina, they gave they w- they wanted to look at whether it, it helped to prevent COVID in healthcare workers. They took twelve hundred healthcare workers. They didn't randomize it because of the ethical issues around that. It was so that was a bit complicated. So they gave them the choice they could opt in or out. So 700 or so patients um, decided to take ivermectin for for prevention and not one during the, the study period, not one of them got COVID. So out of 700 people on a preventive dose and I believe it was a once weekly single dose, so it's kind of like taking a malaria prevention, preventative. Um, just a once a dose, um, once a week dose. The group that didn't take it, so 500 or so patients. I speak under correction. I think it was 58 patients, something like that. 58 people got COVID, but I I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I speak under correction with that. But I mean, the statistical significance of comparing any number with zero is infinite, right? So um yeah When so but the problem is it's a threat to the vaccine rollout because i initially i was perplexed but there's legislation because the vaccines are are they See, have emergency use authorization.
0: yeah so i right? uh, <laughs> here's what you talk about uh, knowing your boundaries or your limitations very well yeah well in this realm i go well, I know mine. I, I literally have not been a medical doctor, nothing, right? I just I do all the reading like you. I have said yeah. this I said this on the phone. I do all the reading too. I, I I talk about it in groups and I understand the ice the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But when you have people that are held in high regards in your profession say things like, There's an avalanche of data supporting it. I don't need to know what ivermectin is to go, Well, it's preventative and they obviously like it. There's you, you talk about all these different trials, you talk about Pierre Corey and all the work he's done on the front lines and his experiences with it and you just you you start to listen. And it's like sounds like it works. And then you bring up you bring up uh well, this is the line that when I heard it by Byron Bridal, I went, how isn't that like the headline? That is we cannot have emergency use authorization of vaccines if it is recognized there are effective and safe treatments available so by suppressing yeah. ivermectin as an effective um, treatment at the start of this thing they can have emergency use authorization for vaccines essentially is what i take from it
1: yeah so because of that piece of legislation it's a threat to the vaccine rollout and Vaccines are one of the pillars of a pandemic response, yeah. they they're uh, you know Im- Im- important they play an important role, but but treatment of sick patients is also so this perplexes me. like so governments have had the sweeping powers, sort of emergency powers to redefine our socioeconomic landscape. Um, you know, you can shut down businesses, et cetera, et etc. Um, new legislation has been passed, the, what the C ten bill or whatever that was, um, you know, effectively al- um, al- al- allowing curating of <laughs> of media content. Um, why, if if that piece of legislation was in the way, or was a threat to the vaccine rollout? Why not meet and and change the legislation, even just temporarily, because of this pandemic? We're in this unique situation. So are we going to throw out this effective treatment because it's a a threat to the vaccine rollout? And, like, what are the motives here? We're throwing out something that no one's going to make money from. Um, Why not just... Even temporarily get get a Supreme Court injunction, or whatever, to suspend that legislation temporarily. That says
0: you can have ivermectin used, but still have a so vaccine. So we can treat. Role. So 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 four pillars:
1: um, public health measures to limit spread, vaccines on either side, and then in the middle, treating sick people and preferably early, because if you can prevent. And I know there's there's like, um, I think it's Dr. Peter McCullough says they they've had, in his, ex- in his experience, where they are, are able and free to use um, early treatment protocols, and that's the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, and their protocols are on their website for early treatment. And they say the trick is to use it as soon as possible, because you want to use it while there's viral replication. Um, you can prevent hosp- os- os- hospitalizations you can reduce icu admissions and that's the, that was the whole reason for the lockdowns was because icus were being overwhelmed so if you can and even if it's a, a small you know even the those those who are maybe critical or not not sold by the data even if it's a modest reduction maybe the third wave of lockdowns was not necessary what what difference would that have made for small businesses, for families, for kids in school? For kids in school. It, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, it, it just perplexes me. The, um, And I think that's one of the big lessons and something that we need to dialogue about. And, you know, public health agencies globally that are essentially hiding data and standing, like Merck, they changed like there was never an issue with ivermectin safety but now all of a sudden they've put out a statement on their website that they have safety concerns around ivermectin so
0: and that's well you want to talk about strange hey folks thanks for tuning in this was part one of andrew Liebenberg. he'll be back on wednesday with the second part of his episode uh if you enjoyed this make sure to subscribe Um, leave a review share with your friends Uh, appreciate all you guys tuning in and and giving me your feedback on what you think of um, you know all these conversations so we're going to catch up to you guys Wednesday and until then